come to talk with you today about the most important thing in your life, and in my life, and in the life of anybody that you may meet in this coming week. I've come to you today to talk to you about your heart. And to get at this particular subject, I want to invite you to look with me at a very decisive moment in the history of ancient Israel, a nation among the few that's still around 3,000 years later from the events described uh, here in the Scriptures. The year that we're going to be looking at is 1000 B.C. The nation of Israel is desperate for leadership as it passes through a very tumultuous time. The people of this country uh, are divided and are squabbling and fighting. The economy is in tumult. There's serious competition from outside the country. There's moral decay within the country. In other words, not much that would connect with life today. Much. And God directs the prophet Samuel to go to the house of one of the leading families of Israel, the family of Jesse. And he instructs him to anoint the individual whom God has chosen to guide Israel through the next chapter of its famous history. And God tells Samuel that when he gets there, God will show him who is the one. So let's pick up the story then in 1 Samuel chapter 16 at verse 6. And I invite you simply to listen as I read aloud this morning. When they arrived, Samuel saw... Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. By that, I'm assuming that he must have been a fine cut of a man. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. For the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, another son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen thee. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. In other words, he's the lowest on the ladder. I mean, he's, he's not leadership material. You understand he's, he's out doing the dirtiest chores. He's out, he's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. Send for him. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What was it about him? What was it about the youngest son of Jesse that made him the one? 
the one that God chose to establish a kingdom that gave us Jesus, that's still around 3,000 years later. That ought to make us wonder, I think, as we struggle today on so many different fronts to determine what's going to make our nation endure or even worth enduring the challenges that we face in our time. What exactly did God see as he scanned this boy's life? Was it because David had a fine appearance and handsome features, as the Bible remarks? Was that why He was the obvious one. Was it because he was athletic with a slingshot, as we'd soon find out, or had a personality that made him politically popular? He got along with all kinds of people. Was it because he was a very fine musician? He was. Or because he had the sort of brain that could compose these poetic psalms so beautiful and soul-searching that they're still being sung and prayed all around the world today? Was this why? Why, when there were, at least at the beginning, seemingly so many more obvious choices than this least of Jesse's kids, why was David the one that God determined to choose and to use? The Bible answers, it was because, and I quote, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he He looks at the heart. At the heart. Good looks and athleticism, personality, artistic talent, brains are all marvelous instruments. But these gifts are valuable to God. And I would suggest really to us only to the extent that they are being operated by a person with a certain kind of heart. The world has no shortage of fabulous-looking people, as I'm sure you were reminded when you looked into the mirror this morning as brushing your teeth. (laughs) Great athletes it has. Praise be to Michael Jordan and those marvelous tennis players and golfers we get to watch this weekend. The world has no absence of superb musicians and geniuses of other varieties. They're not in short supply, though I guess, I guess judges for American Idol are these days. Still, we battle, don't we? With all of this talent, all of these instrumental powers around us, we battle in the halls of Congress. We struggle in the halls of our businesses and our homes and our schools and even in our churches with problems that just seem intractable. With Goliaths that just seem insurmountable. Not because we don't have the right instruments. But because we do not have the right heart. Directing those instruments. Why did God choose and use David? Why in spite of his notable flaws and many failings. Do we still speak his name with fondness and admiration? Why? The writer of the book of Acts answers, and I quote, After removing Saul, God made David their king, saying, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. 
For he will do all, everything I want him to do. He has the kind of heart that will lead him to do all that I want him to do. And then Acts goes on and says, from this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he has promised. And I think the implication here is that having the right heart is the start of salvation. There is no salvation that does not include the heart. So, do you want to see the salvation of our nation? Do you want to see the salvation of your family, of your marriage, your kids? Do you want to see your church become the redemptive influence in the world around that it can be? you want to see the part of your workplace or your school or your neighborhood that you get to influence become a better place? Do you want to see this kind of salvific effect beginning to move out in greater and more powerful measure, then I beg you, turn off the celebrities, turn down the music, turn out the shrieking pundits, turn off all of the trivial Twitter and pay more attention to the condition of your heart. of The world's heart. Here is an immensely important proposition I want to advance this morning. God designed human nature and our world to work wonderfully so long as it stayed in sync with his heart. The heart of God was meant to supply and to resupply our heart. His heart was meant to be the pacemaker that guided the rhythm of our heart. His heart was meant to be the ultimate reality that influenced the functioning and the outflow and the health of our heart. And that is why I think that the most helpful thing that I can do for the world, and I want to take confession to you, I make a confession to you. When I was a little boy, I wanted more than anything else to change the world. When I was the age of these children right here, I was already dreaming. I'm going to change, help, I want to change the world for the better one day. And I have never given up that dream. And I pray you've never given up that dream to change the world for the better. I think the most helpful thing that we could possibly do to change the world for the better is to start in a deeper and more searching and personal way to attend to the affairs of the heart. And I want to invite you to reflect with me today on this and invite somebody else that you know to join you next week as we continue this exploration on this crucial question, how is your heart? How's your heart? Is it beating after God's own heart? And what can make it even more so? Before we go there, however, I think there's an even more primary question to be answered, and that is, what exactly do we mean by your heart? What do we mean by that? We're obviously not talking about that 10-ounce muscle behind your breastplate, though, as I'll say more in coming weeks, there are really some helpful analogies to be found with your physical heart. We're also not talking about your heart in the Valentine's Day sense. One of the greatest misconceptions going in our reading of, and misunderstandings of what the Bible says on this particular subject is this tendency to think of the heart as the place of emotions or sentiment. 
How many of you think of the heart in those terms? Many of us do. When the Bible is trying to get at the place of the emotions or the feelings, however, it does not use the term heart. You know what word it uses? Mind. Your mind. Our mind is the place where both ideas and emotions reside and are intertwined in biblical terms. And I think practically speaking. We never have a feeling that isn't in some shape intertwined with and fashioned by our thoughts. When someone cuts me off in the donut line and I feel this emotional surge of anger, it's because there are all kinds of ideas wrapped around that feeling. Ideas like people are supposed to wait their turn. And that guy's cheating. And I was first. Conversely, I never have a thought that isn't accompanied by a feeling of some sort, even if it's a very low-key feeling. Like, I'm afraid all the donuts might be gone. Or, why doesn't that church buy more of the glazed ones? Thoughts and feelings, ideas and emotions are intertwined in the mind. In the mind. The heart, however, is a different thing. The heart can be influenced by the mind, by thoughts and feelings, but it is far more often the other way around. In fact, it's usually the condition of my heart that determines the thoughts that I let in, that I push out, and that I entertain once they're in. It's usually the condition of my heart that determines the feelings that get wrapped up and ignited by my thoughts. If my heart is basically oriented towards getting my own in life, for example, then my thoughts and my feelings are going to flow in a certain way and direction when I'm cut off in the donut line or when the donuts run out, the ones I like, right? But if my heart is basically, fundamentally, oriented toward receiving life as a gracious gift or toward seeing other people blessed by grace when they don't deserve it. That's what grace is. If that's the orient, basic core orientation of my life, then my thoughts and feelings are going to flow in a very different direction when the exact same circumstances confront me. Right? I'll have different thoughts and different feelings because of the core orientation. Of my heart. Does that make any sense to you? This is why Proverbs says, above all else, above all else that you're concerned with, guard your heart. I mean, really, keep watch over your heart because it is the wellspring of your life. It is the condition, the basic character of our hearts from which our life, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act flows. In fact, as Dallas Willard points out, the Bible uses the words heart, will, and spirit interchangeably. It's why when we say his heart wasn't in it, 
Or (laughs) you just didn't have the will anymore. Or he lost his spirit. We're saying the same thing. Right? We're naming the reality that something at the center that was needed, something from which everything else might have flown, was empty or clogged or broken. Your heart is not just one aspect of you. It is not just one dimension of your being, like your physical heart is just one organ among many. Take it or leave it. Oh my gosh, you know, they had to take out my heart. It got all clogged and corroded and seized up. They took it out, but thank God I still have my liver. Oh, your heart is so, is so important. Your heart is the central, motivating, reality-sorting, life-determining thing about you. As John Eldridge observes, this is why the subject of the heart is addressed in the Bible more than any other topic, more than works or service, more than belief or obedience, more than money, and even more than worship. I'm I'm apologizing to you. It's taken me 12 years to focus this explicitly on something that's the dominant theme of the Bible in many ways. Again, Dallas says, our life and how we find the world now and in the future is almost totally a simple result of what we have already become in the depths of our being. From there, we see our world and interpret our reality From there, we make our choices and break forth into action, try to change our world. We live from our depths, says Dallas. We live from our heart. Now, this truth is at the crux of the encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees that we read about in Matthew 15. The other text I want to look at with you this morning in closing. In this particular story, the Pharisees come to Jesus railing about how poorly Christ's disciples are observing the cleanliness rituals that they believe were at the core of religious faithfulness. Now, now you've got to understand that the Pharisees were not the Simon Legree characters that they get melodramatically made into. So we can write them off and say, well, they're nothing like us. The Pharisees were, in fact, much more like the first seven of Jesse's sons in the story that we read from the book of Samuel. From an appearance standpoint, they were the Angelina and Brad of the religious community. Okay? They were fine. They were handsome. They were attractive people in many respects. They were Hall of Fame candidates when it came to their athletic observance of all the religious things, the things that they felt they were sure that the holy God wanted most or that people believed he wanted most. They washed not only their hands scrupulously. You know, every time they sat down to eat, but they washed all the bowls and everything they touched just to to reflect their sense that God is holy, so we're going to be as clean as we possibly can be. They they ate only at the kosher training table. They avoided being sullied by contact with sinners. With their brilliant brains, they studied the Jewish law. They sang the Psalms, the codes of Israel, like, well, like lyric opera stars. 
They had it going from an appearance standpoint. They were a lot like us, like, like me. They looked cleaner. They talked cleaner. They kept their Sabbath mornings cleaner, except during soccer season. They kept their website filters and their cable TV program selections cleaner, or they would have, I'm sure, had it been around at that time. They stayed cleaner than the bulk of their society did. And they could see that the world would be a better place if others did likewise. And they were partially right. But there was a problem. You know what that problem was? You know what that problem is? That's right. The Lord looks at what? The heart. What did God see when he looked at the Pharisee's heart? Well, many things. But in this particular section of the scripture, it's, it's this, this aspect that gets named. The Pharisees had developed this, this little rule that said that if you took something and, and I quote, named it as a gift devoted to God, you did not have to share it with people in need. In other words, if your mother or your father had something that was really needful to them, you could say, oh gosh, I would love to help you with that. I, I, I would love to meet that need, but you know, I have dedicated this to God. And you could believe that your heart was in the right place because you were serving God above all else. There was a set of issues with this. First, it suggested that their hearts really were not oriented toward God at all. They were not oriented to honoring one's parents. And God had made that the fifth commandment. I mean, it was pretty important, wasn't it? God had said, do this, honor your parents. And yet they'd found a way of skirting the commandment and telling themselves they were still honoring God. They were still serving God. Secondly, they appeared to be doing God's will. They appeared to the surrounding world to be doing God's will, and they believed it was the same to appear as to actually do. Jesus didn't buy it. You hypocrites, he said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, Jesus said. They're more concerned with man-made rules. They're more concerned with rationalizations and thin appearances. They're more concerned with looking good than having a heart that is good. If your heart is in sync with God, then you will not have to try to be good. That's what Jesus meant when he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. 
If, if your heart is in sync with God, if it's connected to him and oriented as his is, it won't be hard. It won't be a difficult, onerous thing for you to do good. It will be the natural outflow of your life. To use the terms suggested in this passage, it will mean that you will just naturally work to preserve life because God considers life sacred and your heart is in tune with his. It means you will respect marital covenants because God is a covenant-keeping God. It means you will honor sexual boundaries because God you know, sets certain boundaries. Gives us wonderful freedom within those boundaries, but sets certain boundaries. You will work for for money. You will actually labor for money and you will steward it wisely because it's a treasure to be used in stewardship. This, this won't be hard for you. You will speak the truth. You will not bear false testimony. You, you will care for your neighbor's reputation. This behavior will just flow out of you naturally, easily, if your heart is in sync with God's. But if my heart is not oriented as God's heart is, in sync with God's heart, then all kinds of unclean things will flow out instead. The spiritual cells, in a sense, that make up evil and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander and all that stuff, those spiritual cells will be on the move through me all the time. They will be moving out towards others all the time, even if my appearance fools you in the donut line. Even if I'm able to put on a good show. That's a confession. So the question I want to pose once more and then let you go. Is how's your heart? How do you want it to be? How do you move from here to there? Here's a simple discipline that I want to offer for us to try this week ahead together. And each week I'll try and supply just one idea, something we can do to advance God's heart in us. Ask God to help you to do a heart scan. That's the, first, that's the first need, right? You've got to diagnose the issues. You've got to know what's going on. Ask God to help you do a searching heart scan. Ask God to use those life circumstances you will run into. The donut line, the conflict with your spouse, the struggle over money, the temptation on the screen, whatever it may be. Ask God to use life to test you. To be the machine that tests you. Let him use those fear, anger, anxiety, or troublemaking circumstances that you'll run into. Be part of this test to show you what comes out. What's in your heart. Let the words of David be your prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. For that, you know, that is really 
his desire. That is really the possibility. That you and I come to have a heart as healthy and strong and whole and life-producing as his is. A heart that beats with him forever. Please pray with me. God, in our clearest moments, we know we don't want to just act the part. We want to have the heart. Help us with that, Lord. Help us see what's really going on in the depths of our being. Work by the power of your Spirit in that place. Renew our hearts with your heart. Lead us in the way everlasting. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.